Welcome to Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Hello, Otterites. This is episode 169. I am Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Somehow sitting in the captain's chair this time. I guess it's my turn, I suppose. Well, a lot of these philosopher ones were kind of your idea. Well, this is true. I so, came up with the idea know, for we, this we, sort we of stuff. Sort of so put you on the spot for captaining yeah, okay. any of these. Because, heck, this is great stuff. I mean, it really is. I mean, the, the, this, this whole business yeah. of, uh, I believe it's going to be eight episodes total, uh, listeners, where we're going to talk about the greats of modern philosophy. We're going to get everybody? No, no. But then again, we've already done Nietzsche, which is a big one. We did Voltaire, not a philosopher, but in the, in yeah, the arena. Yeah, I mean, well, in the arena, yeah, yeah. certainly. So, uh, yeah. And we decided, well, what, if those were so cool, we love doing them, let's do more of those. So we kind of started out with the beginning, well, not the, quite the beginning. We didn't do yeah. Descartes. We made one day, but we kind of skipped over and went. Yeah, down. I mean, we didn't go Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. Well, business, there's, a, there's a definite uh, demarcation with Descartes as that's the beginning of modern philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and we, we kind of skipped over him. Uh, I guess he perhaps does not exist because he's He's no, no, no longer thinks. Thinking. No longer thinks. Therefore, he no longer is. But the well, that that you know, biologically, that's fairly true. That's fairly yeah. true. That's right. But comas we, notwithstanding. Yes, we're uh, so we did Hobbes last time, which I think I thought we did a really great job with. We're going to kind of succeed. Hobbes was fun. It's a little harsh on him, but you know. Well, that's expected. We're, and Hobbes comes back again this time here because, in many respects, the man we're talking about here is the antithesis to yes. Hobbes. And in fact, he is responding directly to Hobbes in much of his works. Yeah. That's John Locke. Yes. Uh, so we're, we're taking this in chronological order only because each one builds upon what was said before yeah. them. Yeah. You have to know the earlier ones to understand where the later ones come in. And Locke is the ultimate example of that. Yeah. And I think part of what makes taking on these philosophers and their thinking uh, important is where the philosophers go, hopefully, in some degree or another, society follows. For sure. the good ones, yes. Yeah, it's for the good yes. ones, that's correct. Well, you know, even even some well, of the even sometimes the bad ones, society mm-hmm. still follows. Well, well yes, yeah, you said hopefully they go, they follow. And it's like, well, yes, hopefully they follow yeah. the good ones. Yeah, because Nietzsche still has ter- tremendous influence even today. Yeah. and there are some people that said he was a raving lunatic. Uh, and uh, well, we're, we are talking philosophers. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, I mean, that would seem like a very dry subject and something people avoid, but to understand why something happens in history. You have to understand motivations. Motivations often relate to philosophy, and philosophy then becomes, well, where did that influence come from? Right. That's right. You, know, you talk about a Voltaire, or you talk about the founders, where we love to talk about the founders. Well, you know, as great as they are, they didn't make up these ideas out of whole cloth. They're influenced by... In particular, Locke. Absolutely. Yes, uh, Voltaire and uh, the founders were directly influenced by Locke. In fact, Jefferson was an enormous aficionado. Uh, We would call him a fanboy today, using today's language, (laughs) of of Locke and his theories. And so much of who we are as a country is absolutely Locke. Yeah, yeah, philosophy, you know, uh, sometimes we sound very elitist, 
when we talk about these kind of things, like the quote we were talking about last last time in Code of Honor from Locke about uh, when you read it, you know, you gain knowledge, but uh, when you think on it, you make it your own. Yeah. In many ways, that's a very elitist attitude because not everybody has the time to do that. You know, especially at the time that Locke would have written that, mm-hmm. the vast majority of people would not have because they were busy laboring sun up to sun down. Yeah. Oh yeah. To make you know to give somebody like Locke. The food that he ate, and you know, and he recognized that. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just he saying. He understood that dynamic. Yeah, and very, very keen. But even in today's society, yeah. not everybody has the the time, really, even the inclination. Uh, but it really, and we we talk about it in ways that you know you're not almost like. We sometimes I think uh, talk about it as if you're not fully human if you don't do these things, you know, because you're not mm-hmm. you're not living at your full potential. Uh, as a human being, now your particular potential might not be that because that's just not what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it, it really I think is essential to understanding the world. I said, uh, however many episodes ago, a long time ago, that philosophy is trying to understand the world, uh, understand the meaning of life through natural means. Yeah, theology is trying to understand the meaning of life. Through means of faith, mm-hmm. so to me there are two sides of the same coin. You right. cannot do one without the other, uh, because many philosophers, and you might even be able to say most, are either a uh, particular uh, theology expressed in secular terms, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or a particular philosophy, uh, philosophy might be a, a worldview that is a direct uh, reaction against a particular faith or mm-hmm. theology. So it's almost impossible to, to divorce one from the other in one way or another because a lot of modern philosophy is in direct uh, reaction to religious philosophy. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's really uh, interesting. Uh, Locke is, you know, he's born, you know, in, uh, in 1632. This is the time that, you know, the beginnings of England coming to America. Yeah, they've only been coming there, you know, uh, Maryland was founded in 1632, for goodness sakes. So those 1600s, which in many respects you're talking about Louis XIV, you're talking about all the, the wars of religion that are going on on the continent, this is post-Hobbes. Right, so Hobbes is this reaction to the disorder of the English Civil War. Uh-huh. Locke, on the other hand, is very much a parliamentarian responding to this notion of what is sovereignty? Is sovereignty derived from the divine right of the king or is sovereignty derived from this community of the people? And different from where Hobbes is, Locke is very much, you know, you the, the nation has sovereignty because the people granted that. And that is, that is fun, that is, it seems obvious to the American mind of 2022. That, well, of course, that's the way it's been. We've always believed that. Well, no. Hobbes is the great example of these were competing philosophies at the time. This was the linchpin. Modern freedom as we know it can be found in the opposition of these two philosophies to each other. Hobbes was very much authoritarian, as we discussed, imperialistic, one man with a vision, uh, the enlightened despot that brings everyone along by his own will. Locke is the absolute opposite of that. He's saying it is absolutely not the case. He's called the fa- he's called the father of liberalism, but that's 
classic European well, liberalism, meaning moving away from kings and emperors. Well, it's very much in the name. It's about personal liberty. Yeah, that, right. that's exactly it. It's it's a political and moral philosophy based on the rights of the individual, liberty and consent of the governed, and equality before the law. All of those things which we take as for granted, very much is something Hobbes would have been opposed to, because he says those get in the way of an ordered society. Yeah. And one of the really cool things about Hobbes, too, is, or I'm sorry, not Hobbes, Locke, is he's feeding these ideas through multiple disciplines. Yes, he Science, is. Science, medicine. Because he is a physician, that's correct. And, and governmental theory. Uh, he's very much this really cool polymath. So I, I really, you know, I, I get the attraction of someone like a Jefferson, who was also kind of... Very much a polymath. His hand in everything... Um, you know, Washington the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, their hands are in Voltaire, a lot of things. Voltaire is a similar, is, is a similar way. All yeah. They're all influenced uh, yeah. by Locke. Uh, <coughs> the concept of civil rights, human rights, democracy, rule of law, economic political freedom, freedom of speech, press, religion, private property, market economy, that's all. That's yeah. all of this through here. Private property, in fact, and uh, I want to just spend a moment on this that is one of the linchpins of his political theory. Everything is, that's, that's, it's very hard into the American mindset, the capitalistic mindset. That's Locke explaining that the only way, in his mind, that you have the ability to better yourself and is to, the only way society is better is by the individual to be better and the individual must be made better by his ability to freely express and own his own goods. Yeah, one of his quotes uh, that I almost chose, except uh, your quotes didn't go there, uh, was, all wealth is produced from labor. That's right, yeah. And that's, and that's exactly what he, in, in his mind, if when we all do that and we benefit ourselves, we thereby benefit society afterwards. Philosophically, he and Hobbes were absolutely opposed to each other, and this, I think, is the crux of the matter, and I hope I'm not spoiling it too quickly, based on their understanding of the nature of humanity. Because in many respects, when we talk philosophy, that's what we're talking about. Right, right. right. Meaning and, of life. And yeah. Locke builds from a, it's a notion of self, the concept of the self. Mm -hmm. He is then, well, what does that mean? And he builds from there into what science is what government is and he's called the father of empiricism yes which is ooh, I, I, I'm glad that, that tingles martin's antenna yeah um because it's 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 you know we know things through experience right and those things then to have value we've got to be able to repeat them he is the this. ultimate value of nurture, not so much nature. Yes. Whereas Cart, uh, Descartes was all about, there are certain things you know inherently by, at your birth. Locke resists this. He says, no, there's nothing that way. That's where the word tabula rasa comes from, your blank slate. Now, we've learned since that time, now, it's what both. Does, what does Descartes say that uh, you know from... Because uh, uh, knowing is different than... The Catholic concept of natural law written on your heart is... That is correct. It's it pre-existing concepts, uh, innate ideas, 
that's what there are certain things that we know on that. I, I, I'm not a, yeah. enough of a, a Descartes scholar to be able to give you the details on that. No, no, much not enough of a Cartesian. <sighs> Very yes, my coordinates are elsewhere. I'm afraid. Oh, that's the best one of the day. I would say you knew that had to come that's up. The What's best the word one of the Cartesian day. came up? Your, your coordinates are out of whack. <laughs> that's exactly right. But no. Um, but right, Locke is this the idea of the scientific method. If you can do something and observe it then okay, I ought to be able to replicate that and get the same result, and that's really science. And you always test. That's correct. Everything. Everything there's nothing Test that can... it all and retest it, and then come back 10 years later and test it again. Correct. And Locke would be very much, there's no such thing as settled science. That's an anti-scientific attitude. Well, that's exactly, yes, you're exactly right. Uh, that's, that's what empiricism is. It's all about uh, demonstrating that by observation. In some fashion. Now, that's also very secular. Yeah. But that and but that is exactly that's not exactly, but it's certainly one of the attractions that Jefferson had to his philosophy because he's outside of the hereditary right of kings or any yeah. form of government right. pre existing right. that's outside the and world of the people. It's very important for Locke that and that's where that concept comes from, the separation of church and state. That's right. This, the the what there should be no state religion, well, that's which is right. a, I mean that's a huge breakthrough concept for the 1600s Britain. Well, that's right because they've they've since not just 1600s Britain. Period. Yeah. Oh, anybody, I mean anybody, everybody, and everybody. There are still places in Europe today that have an official state religion. Well, Louis the Fourteenth, who was you know who reigned during most of his time, was called as well, the other uh, uh, kings of France his most Catholic Majesty. Right. You know, that, that, that was part of the deal. And until Henry VIII, it was that way in England. Of course, by the time of Locke, it is still the same, except it's the Protestant Church of England. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's one of his things is this idea of a toleration. Hey, if you're not going to be tolerant, that means you're trying to conclusively say someone else is wrong, and you can't really know that. that There's no way to know that in... Uh, uh, areas of faith, you have to let people have their faith. Therefore, let's tolerate and let's get rid of this part uh, uh, in, a, in in a public discourse. The argument of uh, arguing from the point of authority to him would be a mis- would be a non sequitur. Right. It, it, it makes no sense. It makes no difference. It's totally irrelevant. Uh, which you would think would have branded him seditious at this time. It did not. He was well respected as a general rule, as a philosopher. As well, he did have to flee England because they thought he was involved in the Rye plot. So yes, he, he, yeah. Apparently, there's not a whole lot of proof for that. So, but back then, just about everybody who was a thinker was driven out of England at one point or another. Yeah, the Rye House plot sent him to the continent, but he was eventually able to come back. Right. Yeah, matter of fact, he came back with Mary II after the Glorious Revolution. Uh, glorious <coughs> for those who won, anyway. Yeah. Well, that's correct. Yeah, William of Orange basically cemented the Protestants on the throne forever, uh, and got those nasty little Catholics out of here. Dirty Papists. Yeah, that's right. Send them over. To back. Send them back to Scotland. That's right. Yeah. 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 Being a Catholic, that's right out. Uh, just, uh, I, I will say this: that uh, I don't think this is true. But when we were doing our show prep. Robert seems to think that the pictures we have of Locke, and we're mostly working off of Wikipedia, you guys know this, looks like the man could use an enema, he says. 
Uh, it just uh, looks very constipated, very unhappy to me. That's uh, I mean, perhaps that was just the way things were in those days. I mean, indoor plumbing wasn't quite a thing, so I can understand that, you know, these sort of things might be that way. Well, you know, he probably wasn't uh, too thrilled about sitting for a portrait. He had shit to do, you know. Well, He's a philosopher. He, that's all in his head. He can sit there and think. He can philosophize all day long. But he's got to write it out for anybody to know it. Which is very true. That's what he did. I mean, his two treatises, uh, which is the name of you know, probably his most famous book, uh, and he wrote many of them, uh, were ama- he, uh, amazing with what, he's, uh, what he lays out there. We cannot possibly cover all the things. Uh, I mean, we've mentioned them. But we cannot possibly get into the uh, into the into the weeds too much uh, with regards to that. But I will say this: and I want to. And I'm trying to circle myself back here. The difference between him and Hobbes, I think, is telling. It is mm-hmm. critical, and it stems because they're both they both want the same thing. They want an ordered society, a productive yes, society. Yes, that's a very key part. They're both aiming for you know what will get us to an orderly coherent society. Yeah, a successful one, one that grows and gets better. That's both both of them have the same goal. Both of them have opposite proscriptions for that. Hobbes says, you know, as we've discussed, it's the authoritative, enlightened ruler, the despot who rules by fiat. Because he's coming up in this milieu of the restoration of the Stuart line and this disorder of the Commonwealth era That's and right. all that. And he knows that we've just come out of all this crap if we had one strong man, if Charles I had been that strong man, it's kind of what he's projecting back, we wouldn't be in the state that we've been in. Therefore. But on the other hand, Cromwell was the very man he describes. I know, there's an irony there. Big yeah. Time. That's right. Now, granted, after Cromwell died is when it really went to crap. Yeah. Exactly. And, and he also understood, you know, Cromwell was essentially a tyrant. And right. It, it was but, that, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, because remember, even... Uh, in Rome, yeah. a dictator was not a bad title. Correct. That's right. So, anyway, uh, Locke sees things differently, though. Locke sees things as the regular people have to decide and respect each other. Right. And what underlies each of this is for for Hobbes, human life is brief, brutish, and short. Unless we, we are we are this, essentially this, evil creatures. Yeah. So this despot has must to be rein controlled. us in and direct us towards. We, you know, good. Uh, and, and I go back to the uh, to the to the line of Jack Aubrey uh, in in the movie Master and Commander. Men must be governed. Always not well, I grant you, but they still must be governed. That's the that's a very Hobbesian philosophy. Yeah. Saying that that the that the sheep are are, are really. Uh, are, are themselves wolves that will destroy themselves and everyone unless they are controlled. That's Hobbes. Locke is the exact opposite. He believes that human nature is social. We are we are built and bit. We are even though this kind of goes against his thing of empiricism, mind you. We are oriented towards getting along and forming social contracts. That's his word. So therefore, the existence of government is only necessary for those odd occurrences that step outside that natural state of humanity. One is a very positive outlook uh, with regard to the nature of man, and the other is negative. There's the essential difference right there. Because Locke believes that humanity is essentially good, that just needs a good guide to help keep things on the track, 
Whereas Hobbes believed man is essentially evil and must be controlled in order to keep things on the good track. And that's what I want to put before you guys. But you know what? Other than the... Because Locke did recognize that mankind could be selfish. Correct. So, <clears throat> other than the starting point, I can make the argument that you essentially said the same thing for both men. There's the irony for you, yes. Yes, because that guide for Locke, uh -huh. you, could, you could say from Hobbes' point of view, he says the same thing. It just happens to be his king. That's right. But in, in, Locke's, in Locke's case, though, it needs to be, it flows from the people based on their right. social contract and social ability. No, I get that. I'm yes. just saying that the, the language used mm -hmm. is essentially the same language. It's just, you know, it, 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 it can be interpreted either way from both sides. Yeah. I mean, it, Locke is coming from a perspective of humans can be reasonable and understand that they need to grant a government certain powers and do so through this contract with each other. That's exactly it. And the key being, okay, as long as everybody lives under the contract, mm -hmm. then everything's going to work and we can we need to be tolerant then of as long as you live under the contract, tolerant of other viewpoints. Exactly. And that's why that way government should be minimal and limited in his mind. My favorite two words. Yes, I knew that. Limited that's, government. That's right. That's and that. That's where it comes from. It's, and that's, I that's, you have two other favorite words, but we won't go into yeah. those. <laughs> that is. Well, they, you know, they're they're kind of a match set. You know, it's bookends. Limited government and. You know those other two. <laughs> those other two. Yeah. It's not that you can't have one without the other, but together. Together, they're very powerful. Yes. Sorry, didn't mean to derail the discussion there. No, 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 it's quite all right. Uh, as in, it's, this is very freewheeling, as we all know. Yeah, and, and, and we've posted about Locke mm -hmm. on, our, on www.snakesandhonors.com. Again, Locke is uh, someone Bjorn studied in his uh, ethics class at, at Boo, mm -hmm. uh, glorious mm -hmm. old uh, Bellarmine University. Uh, I was just telling the, uh, the fellas here that... Uh, Apparently, it's a thing now for colleges to have a bass fishing team, and I saw the Bellarmine bass boat in my neighborhood the other day. I, you know, I'm not into fishing like my dad was, but I think that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that it's an NCAA sport and you got to be in a conference, but uh, you know, maybe Bellarmine can join a Division One. Uh, maybe the A Sun has a bass fishing. Uh, that would be awesome. You know, thing. So. Um, but it, uh, you know, he uh, pressed him pretty hard. He found Locke to be the least objectionable. And I get where that is because, you know. What was it, objectionable about Locke? I think the. Because it's, it's interesting to get a different perspective. He's still very much in a place where religion is the center of your life. Right. Even though he's calling for toleration of other religions, mm -hmm. it's still. You know, it's still building a philosophy out of a theological experience, even though he's calling for empiricism and, um, you know, what you experience is what you learn. So, so Bjorn was still trying to work through that, you know, why can't there be some other basis kind of idea? 
Hmm. Um, that's like, but in many ways, that's like saying, why can't there be some other basis for law than morality? Yeah, it is. It is. It's you know, well, you got to build a house on a foundation. Concrete right. works better than sand. Right. It's very biblical of you, sir. <laughs> that's right. Well, yes. I mean, you know, and that's part of the problem I think with a lot of modern philosophers is that they have no foundation. Whether you want to call it a religious foundation or not, it's, well, it's not and, the problem. And, and it's a shifting right. foundation of sand. Yeah, it, a lot of people are trying to explicitly come up with a system of living that rejects faith altogether. Well, well okay. Rejects but, truth altogether as an objective reality. Yeah. You can't come up with a system of anything if you reject truth as a concrete yeah. thing. Yeah, because yeah. ultimately subjectivity results in chaos. Yes. Because uh, whose subjectivity do you choose? Yes. That's what they don't recognize. Uh, that's correct. And, uh, and that's what he's doing. He's recognizing it is subjective. Because he even says that earthly judges, the state in particular, and human beings generally, cannot dependably evaluate truth claims of competing religious standpoints. He's acknowledging that mankind cannot be the arbitrator of ultimate truth because we don't have the, the capacity. That's why it's called faith. That's right. Exactly and that's a that's a pretty advanced recognition for his day for any day. It is it's really it's a startling thing yeah. to go you can still have faith but stop evaluating other people's faith. Yeah. Which was, you know, we talk about the concept of the enlightenment which of course he is certainly one of them. That might be for all the grief we give that term and the abuses we've often said that come from it, that might be the greatest jewel that Yeah. That and he's not saying that uh, the that you can't judge other people's religions. It's that it, he's talking about more in the context of the state. Yes. Uh, so yes, you know, yes. people can decide. Yeah, your religion is screwed up. But yes. for the state to say that is problematic because, as he recognized, that even if we could figure out those competing truth claims, obviously everybody thinks they have. But if we tried to implement that, then you're not going to get the desired effect. You're just going to get uh, chaos of the worst kind because you cannot impose that kind of belief. You can't coerce well, yeah. the, order the, when you... You, you know, can't coerce faith. Yeah, you can't coerce someone to be into the faith. You're just making society more disordered than what you expected. Right. Once Now, once there are other competing faiths, once there is competition in, in, introduced into that particular market, for example, if there's a monopoly, which go back to the term of Christendom back before, then the entire question is not even relevant. They don't even right. talk about it. It's only when new players, when that monopoly was broken, that's well, when that's when things began to fall apart. Right. Well, yeah. <coughs> I mean, not that it was ideal before that. No, no. But because you still had uh, competing uh, nations, not in the sense we know of them to, as today, as we've talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's it, it, it took it out of the equation because. Even though there was the, the you know the rise of, of Islam, it was outside of Europe, uh, correct? Spain, notwithstanding. So, but anyways, um, it, it is interesting to to see how a lot of these Enlightenment philosophers uh, espouse a really good ideal, mm -hmm. but don't necessarily always live up to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, he was generally against slavery, but made some money off of it too. That's correct. Yes, yeah, so, he was. You know, you're talking about you know 1700, you know, 
16, essentially the 1600s. Right, slave trade there. was still going on in England. Very much so, uh, yes. you know, As well as here in the United States. Uh, so it's not like there wasn't money to be made, how, however abhorrent we might find that to be. Um, you know, and he even helped write the, the Carolinian uh, Constitution that enshrined basically absolute rule and, and control of chattel slavery, meaning the African Americans who were, or Africans who were brought over mm-hmm. uh, to, this, to this land. And that was probably the worst of all of the codified uh, slavery laws. It was the most extreme in that yeah. sense. And, you know, he helped write that, mm-hmm. which is just fascinating. You know, I'm not saying he necessarily wrote that particular piece, but he was involved in that constitution writing process. So it's just interesting uh, to see how difficult it right. is. And, and it's hard to know how deep he was in right, it. Right, right. I mean, there, there's some and, thought that maybe he just did a little editing for him and... Right, but, and he was still involved in the process, which it, being involved in the process at all today is now is enough to, to condemn yeah, you to hell. That's a, yeah, condemnable crime. But my point, though, is not so much that... I'm not saying he's a, a hypocrite. What I'm trying to point out is that it just goes to show you that while we espouse these lofty ideals, it's damn difficult to live them sometimes in the context of the culture you're trying to change. Yeah, I mean, the reality of the world you're in... It was difficult even up through the founders. Right. You know, it's, yeah, I'd like to free all these slaves, but if I do, we're broke. Right. Which is not a great argument, but it was a compelling one to them. Yeah, I can starve or I can free these people. So it's very difficult to get to those ideas. And then what happens to them? Yes, he would see, in using his language, he would see it as a breaking of the social contract. In many ways, it's it's a flawed social contract yeah. to be sure. But Correct. Um, if you were to, to free them and say, "All right, fine, get off my property," you're doing harm as well. Which, so it's a it was there was never really yeah. a good way out of it that was found. And that was and that's borne out very much because yes. the only way that it ended was with war. Right. Yeah. And it still which didn't is, which should, work it, out great either because in many ways they were put right back in metaphorical chains, mm-hmm. if not real ones, because uh, you know after Reconstruction was over. Those who were plantation owners, those who were the the die-hard Confederates, they were back in power, and they found ways to control those who those former slaves who remained. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could you if you lived on a Virginia plantation, you could set your slaves free, but where would they go? Yeah. The 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 plantation down the street would just go, hey, look at this, free free slaves, free slaves, and they would just grab them up, and you'd be right back where you started. Yeah. So it's, I mean. Yeah, you could, oh, take your slaves with you on a trip north and free them in, in New York or... But they'd probably like be driven that. out of town. Yeah, and, but they could be grabbed there, too, and taken right back point, to yeah. the south, you know. So it was it was very difficult. It's easy to, 200 years later, point fingers, but it, it it's, it's, it's a mess. Once you get into this stuff, it's a huge mess. It is. And it's hard to get out of. Um, it's like so, once you go to Afghanistan, it's a bitch to get out. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Land war in Asia, sixty-four thousand dollar question. That's right. Which kind of goes back to the whole the whole concept in many respects of what is the ultimate societal good for both Hobbes <coughs> and Locke. Peace is the ultimate goal. Yes. That's why. 
part of it, for, for as much adulation as we as modern Americans give to Locke, his system, like Hobbes as well, falls down in the face of what about a moral question? Mm-hmm. Slavery is the obvious example. It's not equipped to deal with that because it sets itself against its own established goals of peace. Certain moral ish, moral changes of society required the attitudinal change, right. which never happened. Well, and you know we are talking yes. Well, we, we are talking you know, obviously philosophical ideals. Yeah. The problem with the Enlightenment guys is either like Voltaire, his principles were just for the enlightened. Yeah, yes. You know, those that he thought were were decent people, in other words, people like him, Mm -hmm. weren't for the little people. They still needed to know their place, which is why I'm not a huge fan of him. Um, And, you know, when you talk about somebody like Locke, he, he, you know, his ideals are phenomenal, Mm -hmm. absolutely phenomenal. But they're also written at a time when things that we consider abhorrent are accepted. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have a way out of that or didn't come up with a way out of it, maybe didn't even want to touch that. Maybe that was the third rail of his day. I don't know. I think he did try to push his ideals farther out in society than Voltaire. Oh, absolutely. No, yes, I I agree with that. I I, I do think... I'm talking about the slavery idea. Yeah, but I I, I think he would have gotten there. Maybe I'm giving Locke more credit than he deserves, but in, in, in researching this and reading through this... Um, I'm much more in a place where, you know, Locke is the guy, where he, he really, he really, he, he's the one that got it right first. Yeah, yes. he got there and was willing to not just go. Well, this is for English lords or this is for property owners. This is for everybody. But yeah, that's right. Which it's was for everybody. the universal, you know, brotherhood of man, humanity. That's unheard of. And yeah. he thinks this up himself. Yeah, I mean, universal religious toleration. Yeah, this is, is important to him. That's correct. And this is, he just, he comes up with this stuff. It's not like he's cribbing from anybody. Now, he is reacting to Hobbes. Yeah. There's no question and, that and, Hobbes yeah, was he, the... He's ex- part of his time, a parliamentarian, and, the, and after, the, after the... He never refers to him by name in any of his works, but most of his works are absolutely seen as a reaction against right. him. So the kind of stuff I'm talking about, which, yeah, all of, all of that is, is certainly valid, and, and maybe he would have gotten to the places where we'd like to see his Because I'm real big on what's your philosophy, and what happens when you get to that ultimate you ideal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? What is the logical end result of that? That's why Hobbes fails for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because and why much of Nietzsche fails for me, because once you implement that, it takes you down a dark path. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Locke, it does not. But yet, there are some things that, that I, I just like to point out because it's just, I find them fascinating. Which is a moment, speaking of fascinating, we need to bourbonize. Oh, thank you, Captain. All right. Yes, Martin has been fidgeting over there because he's running out of what he's got in his glass. And he well, wants to kind of pointing to where we're at the 35 mark. We're, we're getting there, we're getting there. We yes, but uh, because this is break. a big one, you know, just like Locke deserves, I suppose. Uh, as important as he is. This is a big one because we are trying, all three of us? No. No, I've gone to the Woodford because okay. I was a bourbon ahead of you. That's right. And you started with a different bourbon than, than both of us. Yes. So, yes. So at the moment, we are, Martin and I are having the Old Forester uh, 100 proof. 
Right. This is the signature. See, that's that's what uh, I was trying is, to remember. Uh, right. Even though it doesn't say signature on it, is the one that is signed. Yes. Who's, uh, they who's put their name. Sign, the, is that the, so? There's the originally it was signed by the guy who started the brand. Yeah. And then it's now signed by his great grandson, I think it is, who's actually the president of that segment of Brown Foreman's business. Because each one of those distilleries is a yeah. run as like a separate segment, a business segment. All right. Yeah. It's Old Forester, one hundred proof. Yeah, and uh, George G. Brown signature on there. George yep. Garvin Brown, founder. There you go. Um, so yeah, he I, thought it was so good he signed it. This is the, um, I believe this is the first one to seal their bourbons, so that you oh, couldn't really? monkey with it. So the whole bottled and bomb thing mm-hmm. yeah. was never necessary with them. Right, because it's already been done. I can see yes. that. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the rare bourbons that we drink that has a screw top, I will admit, but they could easily go a cork and, and it would be fine. But it, Yeah, you don't notice a, a drop in quality. There's a strength to this. Yes, well, it is 100 proof, yes. It is, but I'm drinking it on the rocks. So it's, and it's, it's actually sat here a little bit before I've actually drank it. Uh, most of my ice is starting to melt. It's got a, wow, it's got a, a back of the throat, uh, just a power to it, even uh, even with that chill, even with that water, that bloom and blossom, I believe is the word we've been using. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, when, when I was talking about it, and they said it's very much a mouth-centered, lower mouth, not even so much the upper palate, but uh, it, it really just, yes, you can get in there. Very much. Swish yeah, it around. I agree with uh, Robert's uh, original evaluation. This is tremendous stuff. Um, full flavored, um, wonderfully woodsy, and uh, balanced. Mm-hmm. Touch of sweet, but mm-hmm. not too much. Um, Touch of that char, the, the yeah, smoky stuff, yeah, but char, not too much. That, that, that little bit of that, that oak wood coming through, the tiny bit of that uh, woodsy caramelness. Yeah. Um, Maybe a hint of citrus uh, in there. Yeah, it's very balanced and, and super awesome. Yeah, yeah. Now, I have gone to the uh, Woodford Double Oak that uh, Francis has provided because uh, I am out still, mainly because every time I go, I think, oh, I need to get this other bourbon that we haven't tried or something like that. Right. Uh, and I'm spending my dollars on multiple bourbons instead of just that one. Because that one is, you know, 50 yeah, bucks when yeah, it's on sale. Yeah, you lay out 50, 55 bucks for that Double Oak. Yeah. So... Uh, the reason we, we did this was the Old Forester signature was supposed to be the same mash. Now, of course, that's not double oaked uh, like the the Woodford is. So I do find they are very similar. Oh, okay. Very similar, uh, which they should be. And uh, I think I added one extra ice cube more than I usually did. So this ended up being a little bit more diluted than it should. Um, but I get that same bloom of flavor. Uh, it's not as strong, and I'm wondering if it's because the ice, I had too much ice in here, mm-hmm. and uh, it is diluted too much, because I don't pour a whole lot yeah. of bourbon. I like a, right. a, a small amount. Like I'm always amazed at how much I see in your guys' glass. I know it's, it's partially because you use more ice than I do. Yeah, right. yeah. there's um, a lot of ice. Yeah, but uh, you do, you get a, a very good uh, a bloom of flavor on the mouth. It's one of those ones where the flavor doesn't... Uh, bite or, or burn so much that you want to get it out of the mouth quickly, like some do, yeah. uh, and experience it uh, in the throat or down the esophagus to the stomach. So in many ways, it is very sim- they are very similar, 
I think this, uh, the Woodford is smoother, ultimately. Uh, really? Yes, okay. I think that's, it's a bit that's smooth. That's tough, because I, this stuff here, man, this is, you know, this is smooth as a soaked down wood floor. Smooth as a baby's bottle? Yeah. I mean, that, that old Forester, that's some mellow business yeah. right there. Again, I love it. This is tempered by, again, I, I let let the ice sit in there too long, and, and that, that's on me. Because also, I also didn't want to pour too much, because there's about one glass worth left, because you had a very small amount in that bottle. Uh, so, uh, I also said, you could have finished it off, and you probably wouldn't have. Oh, no, 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 no. no, it would have been too much, because I would, I would not be able to get through it before the next show. Right. And when I have to do the Buffalo Trace uh, is for that next That's show. true. Well, you know... Martin here, maybe he can finish it off for us next go around and call it a day. But uh, yeah, they, they are very similar. I, I like the, the, the bloom of flavor in the mouth is the big thing. Yeah. That is one of the, the things I like best about a bourbon that, that has that. You know, yeah, sometimes when it affects the, the, the sinuses is great. Uh, or the, you know, like Angel's Envy where you get that, uh, that slow warmth down your, your uh, throat into your stomach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, when you get something, you just slosh around in your mouth and just have that, just activate all the taste yeah. buds. That's what these both do. Very much yeah. so. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, I would, I would agree. I agree. Good that, stuff. That old Forester, that's that's a home run stuff right there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Might be one of our new favorites. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've tried several of them now in the last uh, mm-hmm. two recording sessions, and uh, so this is what the third because we did yeah, the third. We've done third the one, we've done the 1920 and done the 1897. Now we've done the uh, that uh, 1920 signature. is really hard to beat. That it that is. Was yeah, really, that was really, really well powerful. One hundred ten proof. I it mean, was, you know, but it was boom. You know, balanced flavors with multiple things going on through the mm-hmm. yeah. And to note, you know. This is a relatively inexpensive bourbon as well. Yeah. This I want to say it was a twenty-eight dollar bottle, maybe less. I can't remember. You know, that's it's a, it's under thirty. That's killer. That's yeah. absolutely killer for under thirty bucks. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this to me is uh, nearly equal in quality as the Woodford Double Oaked. Uh, I mean, I'd be hard pressed to say which is twice the price. Which yeah, which is twi- literally twice the price. Yep. So oh. I, I used to say dollar for dollar, the Woodford Double Oak was your was your best value. Yeah. And I've been leaning more towards the Basil uh, Basil Hayden lately. Right. And this one's right up there with it. Uh, just like the Wild Turkey. Yeah. yeah. That we yeah. had was such a, a another yeah. one that had just just that great flavor. Uh, that those that are the, uh, for lack of a better term, the harsher bourbons, uh, like the Devil's Cut. Yeah. It's a nice change of pace. But it's less on, to me. It's less on flavor and more on effect. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, this is flavor. Yeah, super super full flavor deal right here. Yep. All right. So uh, as far as the hard hard part, you know, of lock. Yes. The, the philosophy of living out the ideals uh, because of the age you live in is just this is not necessarily living out or being hypocritical. Uh, like you know, participating in, in the slave trade, making money off of that, you could definitely call that hypocritical. But especially with that whole thing with the quote that I did about uh, about not a, imposing on others' uh, yeah. uh, liberty, uh, he supported child labor. Yes, very and very problematic. What we would consider extreme, like in the factories, dirty kids with, you know. Ten-year-olds in the coal mine. Yeah, deal. kind of thing. I mean, that's because in his essay on the poor, uh, on the poor law, he says that the children 
of laboring people are an ordinary burden to the parish. And by parish, he means basically the county. Yeah. Uh, it's like in Louisiana. Uh, yeah. Parish is the general area that you're, that you're in. Uh, uh, burden to the parish and are usually maintained in idleness so that their labor is also generally lost to the public until they reach 12 or 14 years old. <laughs> so I suggest, therefore, that working schools be set up in each parish in England for poor children so they will be from infancy inured to work. Basically about three years old. When they can walk and do things. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, even outlines the economics of how those schools should work and uh, how they would be profitable for the parish and instill a good work ethic in the children. So, I know he has, comes from a Baptist background, so I, to my mind, that's also a very Calvinistic Baptist background. Yeah, it does sound that it's, way. It's a little deterministic, but. Well, it's not so much deterministic, but it's just a, it's almost a, a very much a, a, a harsh. Yeah, because uh, it's not the the evil. Because he's definitely not Calvinist in the the, the depravity, uh, total depravity of the, the human person. Well, yeah, well, he's quite the opposite. In fact, right. yes, I mean that's Hobbes is the yeah. is the, right. that which must be controlled. But he's he's in an era though when only the wealthy can be educated. Right. So he's going well. What else can we do then? All right, we've got to do something with poor. They can't just sit around. Let's do, he called them, yeah, working schools. You know, we would probably have called them a trade school. At best. At best. So, I mean, he's trying something. Right, and, and I within get Within the realm of what he can imagine based on the moment. Right, I, I'm just, you know, it's, there's a limitation of the times for all of these guys. And yeah. we have it ourselves. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's and, a limitation to your imagination when you live in this circumstance. Right, and, and certainly there was no such thing as compulsory schools yet yeah. uh, for kids. Uh, if you were educated, it was usually by tutor, right. uh, a private tutor. not, uh, And then you went off to university, which was nothing like university today. Yeah. You know, it, so it's an, it was an entirely yeah. different kind of animal. But... What I'm pointing out with this is, and I think this is very Hobbesian as well, because I think he probably would hate that I would uh, uh, compare it, but I think both of them have kind of a utilitarian outlook on these things. So he's looking at these idle kids. He's talking about their idleness. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're not doing anything worthwhile. They're not doing anything productive. And I think this is... Again, this is me kind of playing the philosophical curmudgeon, borrowing uh, Martin's yeah. role for a moment. But again, I, I like to. This is this is where I have fun with this stuff is exploring some of these things and saying, "All right, are you really thinking this through?" Because if you're if you're looking at it from that perspective, which it seems to be what he's doing, because if he's complaining about the idleness, he's he's kind of saying that their worth is tied to their production. Ding, ding, ding. You're exactly right. And that's problematic for his stated goals. Now, the question becomes, is it problematic because, uh, or is he, is he looking at it from this perspective because uh, it's impossible for him to even conceive of anybody who's not part of the aristocracy, the elite, whatever he would call it of his day, even if it's the, just the mercantile class, because mm-hmm. uh, mercantilism is is reaching its its power here in England at this uh, it, really more towards the end of his life than at the beginning. Yeah. But, it, but it's it, beginning. But it is the factor. Yeah. Yeah. Mercantilism. Uh, so is it that they're a drain on society? 
or but you know moms are not working outside the home it's, it's so seem to imply that yes but yeah. that's the implication yeah, yeah. you, you got to feed these folks you know they're taking everything and they're providing nothing that's how so you're right utilitarianism is a very good way of doing it uh, the concept of individual worth uh, it, it, it's 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 he's not quite where I have to read more to, to see what his, his thinking he, is. He's not, a, he's not a John Stuart Mill. He's not there. No, no. But I, I think from the age that we are talking about, I think that utilitarianism, utilitarianism kind of seeps in in a lot of places where they're yeah. not realizing it. That's right. Right, but it's it's a notion of the social contract applying to everyone. Right, even it's minors. Even the poor. You're part of our contract. You have a role. You have a role. You've got to hold up your side of the quilt, just like all the rest of us. Do. Well, but what's interesting though is he only talks about the poor. Yeah. But the children of the rich are no less idle. As a matter of fact, I would say they are probably far more idle because those children, they're working in the family garden. They're doing all kinds of things around the house, with you know. But they're they are being supported by the family. But that's the family's than, point. That's rather family's than job. the community. Well, but that's what, what I'm saying. What he's though. concerned about is. You know the 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 poor being a burden on the parish. What can we do to to provide yeah. some kind but of? But that's what I'm saying. Though I don't think the kids up into the age of twelve or fourteen are just you know playing in the dirt all day long. I think they are providing value and service to the community. But I think again, it's just part of. It, it's, I'm not saying it is. It yeah. seems like it could be just part of that. That segment, I just don't see that they have anything, or that they're really doing much, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to, because like I said, I think you can make a, a better case for the rich children not providing anything. Granted, yes, the family is taking care of that, but those children still aren't doing anything. Idleness they're draining seems- resources yeah. that could be used elsewhere. It's just the thing is, yeah. they're draining it from one place. And, and it's important and it's to hidden. remember, too, that there is a much broader gulf here. Yes. When, when he's talking about the poor and he's in this kind of well-off group, there's an enormous gulf between them. And there was no crossing it. It was, it was a general rule, you, which, where you were born is where you stayed. Right, which is why I think that, that utilitarianism creeps into these philosophers. Because all of these philosophers, uh, if they are not born to it, they do manage to work their way into that society if not that yeah. strata of position mm-hmm. because of their ability to think they go off and they get educated and you know they end up as tutors and what have you so they get out of the although generally if, you, if you're in one of these dirt farmers you don't ever leave that period you still have to have at least some means to even be uh, moderately educated uh, you know to be able to count past 20 so yeah. it, it's kind of thing where it, it, I just find it interesting yeah, I mean, you, you've, you've taken, and you like to do this, of course, as you've said, you know, go down that road, that next step beyond where the philosopher went. But I, I think with Locke, there's a lot to admire here. Oh, I'm not saying there's not. So, so I mean, when you... I think there's you a latch tremendous... Hold, yeah, latch a hold of the empiricism, uh, because you don't have to eliminate faith to do that. Right. But... To know what's going on in in the physical world around you, understand that you can't just make crap up about the physical world. You've got to test it. 
observe it, test it again, then have someone else come in and test it and get the same results. Mm-hmm. And that's what real science is. And even to this day, hopefully, people understand that that's what science really is. Yes. Yeah. Well, well. What you can observe, what you can repeat, and someone independent of you has to be able to repeat it as well. You're, so, yes, you are exactly correct on that. Before we finish here, how about how are we on time? Fifty-one. Oh yeah, we got. I got one last piece here. I do want to cover. I'm going to circle back one last time uh, and get your all's thoughts on uh, the understanding. Now, let me preface this first. Locke rejects the Augustinian value uh, view of man as originally sinful. So the concept of original sin is gone. He rejects the Cartesian position, which holds that man innately knows certain basic logical propositions. He says we know nothing absolutely. I thought that was that you could find him on a map. See, we're back to this again. Let's tell you the, 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 the joke that keeps on giving. That's those, right. Those Cartesian coordinates. Uh, this goes back to an understand, basic understanding of the nature of humanity. We talked a little bit about the fact that Hobbes sees man as inherently evil that can do good. Locke sees man as inherently good who can do evil. Where, folks, do we fall on this? Oh, oh. I know, I know. Give me uh, that, that's, that's, another, that's another show entirely. Another that's right. Um, I mean, I do find the Lockean proposition that humans can't are generally reasonable. That's exactly it. That's because right. Because I think that's more where he is rather than a statement of good or evil. It's humans are reasonable animals and they learn through observation. That's exactly it. Yes. That's that's Locke. I'm extrapolating I, that just yeah. for I, I find that good. Stopping at that proposition, I find that very appealing. That it's there's a there's a an Alexander Hamilton quote I've never used, but I like it because I think it's man is a Man is a reasoning rather than reasonable animal, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. See, I like that better than reasonable. Uh, And the reason I like it is this. If I'm I'm John Locke, or even Hobbes, or Descartes, or anybody else, Voltaire, I'm saying all these things in a particular setting. Mm -hmm. Reasonableness and reasonable or reasoning and reasonableness, yes. are very easy to come by when you are fat and happy. Yeah. When, you have time to devote to it. Yeah. And you have time to devote to it. Or when there is social order. When things have gone to hell in a handbasket, reasonableness and reasoning pretty much fly out the window. Which yeah. is what Hobbes is saying. Which is what he is saying, but he's saying that's the natural state. Right. Which, honestly... I think it is the default unnatural state because I do believe in original sin. Mm -hmm. The default natural state is what Locke is espousing, but without recognizing the original sin aspect of it, which coming from a Baptist background, I get that. And I I think maybe reasonable is the wrong word for Locke. But that's what he. I think that that's what he says. Yeah. I, well, is it or is it more Hamilton's formulation? Reasoning. No, I, I, from I think one of the the things I was reading, I think it, uh, I think reasonable. Yeah. Those is are what those he said. Are, that's what he said. Now you're you're 
postulating he maybe meant something slightly different than that. That's totally cool. Yeah, I mean, reason and tolerance. Yeah, are his linchpins for the social contract. That's right. right, and being reasonable is what leads to tolerance. Or reasoning out things is what leads to tolerance. I mean, we've all seen those pictures. I don't of, know that he would say that. You know, racism is learned. We know that. That's right. Absolutely. You know, I think that's where Locke would have been. Oh, absolutely, because he believe he you know, would believe such you, things as, as, as a states. natural child. You don't know that there's all of this historical burden that you're supposed to have this expectation of this person who doesn't have the same skin color. You don't know any of that. Right. Kids just play together. Yeah. It's just another kid. It's not until that vessel is filled with adult foibles and adult poison, which is probably a strong word, that then... I think it's a very apt word. You yeah. Know, it is. It is. It, it, Becomes off kilter, yeah. right? But we just because quite enlightened that. children can play with other children, no matter what they look like, you know that two-year-old will lie his ass off because he knows he's done something wrong. <laughs> yeah, I didn't yeah. do it, mommy. I did not see it. I did not grab the cookie out of the cookie jar. I did that. I don't know how that cookie jar fell off the counter. That child will lie like a rug. Because they know they've done something wrong. Now, is that learned? I don't know, because that stuff starts pretty early. I re- and so, Locke would say yes. I, yeah, because punishment's learned. I mean, if a child is never punished... Even if a child is never they, punished... Would they be truthful all the time? No, I don't think so. Which interesting. Get, That's which interesting. gets exactly where you go, which one is right. Yeah. The, the, the Catholic answer would probably be both. They are both evil and good at the same time. Well, because it's a, it, it, the inclination to sin is there, it doesn't mean that, that you automatically will sin. That's correct, because you are not deterministic here. We right. We're not, not set that. That's, right. that's kind of where I'm kind of leading yeah. us back a little well, bit. And that's that. why I say that, you know, I, I start at Hobbes, mm-hmm. not that, but I don't go as far as to say evil, because I think that's wrong. Depraved? Uh, no, I don't like that because that's that's too that close would be, to that would be a Hobbesian word because that that goes that. way too close to Calvin uh, Calvinist uh, and there's a little bit of Calvinist influence yes. to Hobbes. I, I think there's much. a little bit in, in in Locke, even though he's yeah. yes. he's a uh, uh, very much a. I think he probably I'd have to do the research, but just based on his ideas of liberty, I find it hard to believe he's a five point Calvinist. Uh, no, no, I, not at all. But yeah. the, the the influence there's there's, a, there's going to be the influence there because there. I mean you know he was born in 1632. That's Puritan times. That's right. Yeah. And so his, it's going his to be there. parents were Puritans. Uh, again, he's a parliamentarian Puritan. Um, again, he spends time on the continent. So he's 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 influenced by those continental ideas, uh, Calvinism and Zwingli and all that. So it's all going on. Right. So. I would fall somewhere in the middle where, you know, we may start closer to Hobbes, but through our reason and God's grace, we end up closer to Locke. I like that. It's continual. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a fixed point. Right. You know, the, the fun thing about this, we're at 58, and we've scratched only the surface Absolutely. of Locke. Because we really did not dig into money and value and the right. self and all these other... Again, he thinks this currency guy, he's, is... Whacked. Yeah, I mean, he's winding 
starting at a concept of the self, then through economics and science and government and all of these things, and making them fairly coherent. Yeah. Well, see, there's the polymath in him. Building He's one the, he on is the next truly on the next. one of the greatest intellects that ever walked the planet. Yeah, because I they're just so, reading so many this, we're this about. stuff about economics and money. It's like. This makes sense. This is uh, he's anticipating supply and demand theory. That's right. Long before such things ever actually. Yeah, I mean he's 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 there before Adam Smith. So this is awesome stuff, and I, I he, this is really cool. For he me. is. I wish we had time, but see that is our intention for for the listener who has heard the name and probably knows nothing beyond that. Hopefully, by the time you've listened to this episode, and if you've stuck with us all this long, you have learned a little bit about the man. Something that you can call from your head, like he would say, you've 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 t- internalized it. You've made it your own. The only thing I'm disappointed about this episode is there's no line in the Monty Python song about philosophers where he factors in. I know, which seems an egregious oversight. Yeah. So uh, that's you know, I, I don't have a name for this episode. All our other uh, names of the episodes are going to be tied to that Bruce well, how philosopher about this? song. All is not lost. All is not lost. Yeah, or Locke is not lost because the well, well, because of the show. Yes. yes, okay. Locke is not lost. I like that. I like that's, that. I'll have to hope, try and see and remember that. Try to remember how to do that. Get All that right. posted. So that's an hour, brother. All right, sounds good. Wonderful. So I guess we're. Uh, Seems like we totally failed in covering that decently. because <laughs> well, there is so much. There is so much. It's, it's I knew when we first started it, it was going to be incredible. Tough. So much. Here. I think we did a fine job though. And next time we shift gears, complete new subject, completely new subject, as John Cleese would say. We're going to go back to pop culture, and Martin, you're you're leading this, aren't you? Yes. Somehow the, the it slid into you. We're going back to walk and woe, baby. Is this fair? Walk and woe. Walk and woe. Punch his pilot. I don't I don't know about that one. Rock bands three. We still haven't come up with a really great name or even a philosophy or an idea of this sort of thing here, so we're going to let... No, I think we know what we're doing. Okay, we do? Yeah. Glad you do. Yeah. <laughs> I think Martin and I are going to direct uh, where this goes, because we, we kind of latched onto the the idea earlier. So. All right, well then, well, I, as usual, it's going to be awesome, so make sure you're here and enjoy the next episode. Hope you enjoyed another pointless discussion of eternal questions. Remember, new episodes publish every Friday at noon Eastern. Spread the word. We're on all the major podcast platforms. And leave us a comment or review because that helps others find us. We're on Instagram, Twitter, as well as our website, snakesandotters.com. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Join us next week, same snake time, same otter channel.